ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Isn't it interesting that adult education is rarely segregated by gender? Uni, TAFE, cooking classes doesn't often say men and women need to learn separately because they learn differently. But in primary and secondary schools, it is a live debate. In Sydney recently, parents protested outside Newington College, a prestigious boys' school, when it announced it will be admitting girls in coming years. Dr Jared Cooney-Horvath is an educational neuroscientist. He can tell us what we actually know for sure about any differences between male and female brains and how they learn. Jared, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me on. Great to have you on the program. I'm very interested to hear from our listeners on this too. Have assumptions about girls' and boys' learning styles affected someone you know? In a moment too, we'll talk to Dr Kelly Burns, who's a sociologist of education, and someone working at the coalface too, a teacher, Jessica Slater. But Dr Jared Cooney-Horvath, we know that male brains are slightly larger than female brains on average. Does that biological yeah. difference affect the way people learn? No, a good a good rule of thumb when it comes to brain size. Brain size uh, is equivalent to body size. So <laughs> the reason why men have men have bigger brains is because we tend to have bigger bodies as well, which means there's going to be a ton of overlap. Unfortunately, there are small men and there are big women, and the brains will change according to the size of the body. So when we look at things as gross as that, as like, hey, what is the size of your brain? Does that impact? Absolutely not. We'll see. We'll, we'll learn nothing by looking at just kind of those gross levels of the brain. And so even if we get more minute, and it still turns out that no, not really. We don't see massive differences in learning due to anything we've ever seen in the brain, unfortunately. That's interesting because many people would say, but if it's bigger, surely that means you are smarter. You have more capacity. <laughs> that would, if the brain was a zero-sum machine, that might make sense. But then you got to just take that to its extreme that would mean blue whales. Their brains are about four times bigger than ours. They should be killing it right now. But I'm pretty sure we're not watching them fly through the air and travel down the road. So it's size is somewhat irrelevant when it comes to power, which, by the way, it's really interesting. I've just been doing some research um, with crows, corvids. So their brain is about an order of magnitude smaller than ours. Yet they can perform feats of problem solving that most six-year-old kids can't. So if we were just looking at pure size or trying to find in the biology what can or can't you do, birds should be stupid. But my goodness, they're, they're kicking some of us right to the curb. Okay, so, so what differences do we see then in how girls and boys choose to engage with learning? Whether we, we talk in a moment about where those differences come from, but what, what has been noted? What we tend to see is, is women tend to focus more on the language arts um, and men tend to focus more on what we're going to call kind of spatial arts. So that would include things like math, science and athletics, which there's some sort of spatial component to what you're doing. So that seems to be the, the biggest and most kind of consistent accusation point we've, we've ever seen. But like you were just hinting at, it kind of changes uh, culture to culture. So it becomes really tricky if we want to draw that back to biology and we assume that most human beings have similar biology, then it becomes really hard to say why in certain countries do we see this pattern and others we don't. And in other countries, we see the complete opposite. Well, yeah. I mean, have we settled on how much of, of this difference between male and female genders is about uh, hardwiring? How much is about cultural difference? How much is about individual learning? How much is about hormones? Can we pin it down? 
Yeah, and I, I think it's a wonderful question. I think if we, if we just stick with, say, the brain, there's a very interesting thing that's just happened. It's called the, the sex or gender similarity hypothesis, which basically says this. Beyond sexual organs, you would think the biggest difference between men and women would be the brain. If we were going to see it anywhere, it would be up there. And we've just never found it. So now there's an, a theory, the similarity hypothesis, which is arguing why. Why we now need to explain why the heck the brain can be so dang similar between the sexes when we think it should be different, yet somehow we are still very different human beings. <laughs> we come out as very different people. So it's, it's, I think we started with the idea that we're going to find everything we're going to need to find up in the gray matter. And the more we looked, the more it just seemed to appear the same. So then you get to, you get to then blow that out to kind of bigger questions like you were just talking about. What about hormones? And absolutely, if we inject, say, testosterone versus estrogen into your body, that's going to feed up and that's going to start to change kind of how your brain communicates and maybe even some structures within your brain differentially for each person. But we can kind of get a, a hint at that. But the problem is, is so like, let's say if I inject you with testosterone, the part of your brain that does kind of spatial awareness gets a little bit stronger, we'll say. And that might be, hey, why guys, especially during puberty, tend to embrace these spatial tasks. But if you flip it, if you start training someone on spatial tasks without testosterone, you just say, hey, let's practice, say, sports, all of a sudden their testosterone starts to increase. So on one hand, you have testosterone leading to the change. On the other hand, you have you trying to make the change leading to more testosterone. So we've got this kind of two-way street, which makes it incredibly difficult to parse out one simple answer, unfortunately. Well, and we've learned so much, haven't we, about the brain's plasticity and malleability over time. Yeah. Is that one of the reasons why this is such a vexed topic, even among scientists? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of science that's been done looking at whether there are sex differences in the brain. Why is it still such a, a matter of debate? It's, you're spot on. It's not just the brain, our, our um, genetic uh, um, the way our genes express themselves, the way our organs express and grow, all of that is plastic now. So we're just kind of learning that the biggest uh, trick to human biology isn't that we came into the world to do something specific. It's that we came into the world with a body that seems so wildly adaptive that no matter what we ask it to do, it can kind of make that happen. And so that's kind of when you, when you can assume science was originally, and I'm, when I say originally, I'm talking only about 50 years ago, was heavily reductionist. There was this belief that if we could just keep cutting backwards and we get to the smallest bits of matter in the body, that will explain everything above it. And that drove our research for a long time, this assumption that if we can just figure out the brain, that will solve everything. And within the last probably 10, 15, 20 years, that's really switched into this recognition that, wait a second, <laughs> we can, if you show a picture of a brain to 100 neuroscientists, exactly zero of us will be able to tell you with any confidence if that is a male or a female brain, we're just not finding those differences. And because of the, the malleability, unless I know everything about that person leading up to that moment, I really can't make any big proclamations about what I've seen anyway. Did you cause your brain to become like that? Or was your brain originally like that? And that's why you are who you are. We just can't parse it apart right now. We're speaking with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, who's an educational neuroscientist about the mysteries of the brain when it comes to learning. We've got this text popped in, 0418 from Leanne in Newcastle. All the research I read as a student teacher told me that boys are more attention-seeking than girls and that in a mixed class, even female teachers will call on the boys more. My experience as a high school student, 100% 
evidence supports that. And we'll be speaking to an educational sociologist soon about uh, what the science says about that and where it comes from. But right now, Jared, just as we wind up, what are some of the things that we know do affect the brain's ability to learn and the ways in which it learns? I'd see. I'd say some of the big things that cross gender specifically. And by the way, that text was was spot on. What you'll see is that there are different ways of behaving between men and women, and those ways then feed back and start to change the brain. But we're back to that chicken and egg problem. But I think some some absolute guarantees. Probably the big dog is going to be stress, regardless of sex or gender. Stress seems to, in some instances, short term boost up your learning, and in long term, once you get to about three days, four days of stress really starts to shut down your ability to engage with learning. Uh, That's why, man, the COVID lockdowns were so tricky. Once we got to over a week on those, a lot of us started to hit that long-term stress and it started to really impair our learning. So you've got things like stress. You've definitely got things like sleep. Amount of sleep is going to dictate what you can or cannot do the following day when it comes to learning. And I'd say feeding right into that text, you've got um, experience. You've got exposure. People have been telling you for decades what you should or should not be doing, what you can or cannot be good at. Those feed back and start to actually impact what we can and cannot do. If I've heard enough times that I'm going to stink at math and then you sit me down to do math, I'm going to stink at it. Not because it was any part of me, but because that was simply one of the driving stories that then impacts how I choose to engage with that learning and negatively impacts it in the long run. Yeah, it's fascinating hearing just how much the brain is a giant feedback machine. Jared, thanks so much for the benefit of your expertise today. It's been great. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. You too. Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath is an educational neuroscientist at LME Global. He's in Portland, Oregon right now. You're listening to Life Matters and I'd be keen to hear your thoughts about whether you've seen assumptions about different learning styles between genders affect someone you know or yourself. Send me a text 0418 226576. We've been speaking about the neuroscience. Let's have a little look at how it plays out in schools. Dr. Kelly Burns is a sociologist of education. Kelly, welcome. Hi, lovely to be here. Great to have your company. You've written about gender differences in education and the rise of something called neurosexism. Tell us what you mean by that and and how important it is. Well, I'm quite interested in the ways in which so-called ideas about the science of gender or ideas about the brain have been taken up in popular advice columns, blogs and in popular literature and how the messages about gender difference come to shape debates about schooling systems, school choice for parents, but also the ways in which teachers understand and respond to children based on these ideas. So how they assume they learn, how they do or do not discipline some behaviours over others based on their understanding of gender, and how these create or limit opportunities for children and young people in our classrooms. So this idea of neurosexism is actually a term that was introduced by an Australian author, um, a philosopher of science, Cordelia Fine. And Fine argues that these types of arguments about the brain represent a very dangerous type of neurosexism, a term that she uses to describe the misrepresentation of neuroscience, the reduction of ideas about the brain to justify long-held gender biases, stereotypes, 
and inequalities. It's really interesting reading the gist of her work, which talks a lot about how the assumptions fed into which science was done, which studies were done and how they were done, and how that's had a, a kind of feedback effect on the conclusions that were drawn. Kelly, how does that play out in the classroom even today? Because I know a lot of teachers are trying really hard to make sure that they're not bringing so many gendered assumptions to the classroom and letting kids just be who they are. Yeah, I think it's really hard because these these types of ideas have really wide popular circulation. Um, and, and so it's hard as both parents and teachers to kind of resist this idea that there are particular ways that we should be uh, teaching and responding to boys and girls and how, how these can be thought of in really tidy, binarized ways. But I think they get played out in all kinds of ways from the types of curriculum we assume boys or girls will be interested in, um, the type of learning styles, the way in which we group them. These kind of everyday practices in some ways are things that we don't even see. So good morning, boys and girls, and lining boys and girls up in two sides of the room to do activities. So gender really organizes so much of what we what we do in classrooms. Um, and they tell children in those classrooms what gender means or should mean. I mean, a lot of parents listening will say, is there really any harm in saying hello, boys and girls, given that the majority of children do identify as one or the other? Yeah, I think it's, um, well, I would say, I would argue that some harm does get done in kind of re-articulating all of, all of the time these kind of binary, simple ideas around gender because not all children do identify within those categories. But beyond that, for, the, for those children who do identify within the categories boy and girl, I think what's attached to those, those um terms is often quite narrow. So what assumptions do we make about what boys should and shouldn't do? And in, in and what do we therefore limit in terms of boys' emotional and social and academic experience? And the same could be argued for the category girl. So it's not just about limiting the spectrum of gender, but it's limiting also at within those categories. So we're speaking with Dr Kelly Burns, who's a sociologist of education at Sydney University. So how should we group children in classroom settings? Should we still pay attention to different learning styles? And if so, how do we uh, unpick that from gendered assumptions about learning styles? Well, I think teachers are doing remarkable work. Lots of teachers are doing remarkable work in schools, um, challenging ideas about gender and supporting children to explore a range of ways of learning, a range of ways of playing, and ensuring that all children get opportunities to do spatial tasks, to do um, imaginative tasks, to do creative tasks. And I think it's about looking at learning styles and providing children with lots of opportunities to navigate different ways of thinking and imagining and interacting and playing with one another. Kelly, are, are public schools, state schools equipped and resourced to take on some of those suggestions? I mean, some of them sound pretty simple, just about the language you use in class, but some of them are going to involve uh, a time commitment from teachers and a resourcing commitment from the schools, aren't they? Well, no, I don't think so, really. I think some of it is just uh, slowing down and recognising the the types of ways in which we address children and the assumptions we bring with us into the classroom. But as I said, teachers are doing this all of the time and they've been doing it for decades. So teachers have been doing this really wonderful work 
of challenging ideas about gender and gender binaries. Um, and I think so we can learn from those teachers that are doing that fabulous work. Um, but also, it's about dispelling these ideas, these widely held ideas about brain and the relationships between the brain and gender. And it was great hearing um, Jared. Jared say those because it's, you know, this needs to be heard because, as I said, these popularized ideas that link the brain to biological difference between boys and girls are pervasive in parenting and in teaching spaces. Kelly, the debate's gone through quite a few changes around what's best for either boys or girls, single sex or co-ed. Is the science settled on that yet? And I mean, does it really matter if if a, a parent wants their kid educated in a particular setting? Is it going to be a problem? Well, I, I think that school choice for parents is a personal and complex matter. So rather than comment on that, I would say that what's important is that co-ed schools allow children to interact um, with one another and is more likely to not reinforce ideas, traditional ideas about gender. So I think there's a great benefit of co-education. Um, but of course, in single sex contexts, teachers can be doing that work of challenging gender ideas as well. It's just a more complex task because it doesn't involve, involve conversations between boys and girls. We've been speaking with Dr Kelly Burns, who's a sociologist of education at Sydney University, and hearing your thoughts via text 0418 Let's bring in a teacher now who's uh, been at the coalface of this debate. Jessica Slate is a teacher at the International Grammar School in Sydney. Jessica, welcome. Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about what great work teachers are doing in the classrooms. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us some examples of, of how the thinking has changed and the practices have changed in recent years. I think it's really interesting, building on what um, Kelly was saying, that language is important. And I think about incremental change in the classrooms because this debate can cause hysteria among people People don't like change, but just these tiny little tweaks in language, in resources and in routines can make a big difference. So Kelly talks about uh, grouping children by calling them girls and boys, lining them up as girls and boys, even um, down to what high school um, children call their teachers in terms of saying sir and miss. Why can't we just call teachers by their first names? We don't have to gender them. Uh, I think also resources are a really important topic. A lot of the resources we see in schools, uh, books, home readers, uh, worksheets and the like curriculum depict children as girls and boys. And I think it's really interesting to think about windows and mirrors. Children need to see themselves reflected and other children need to have windows into other children's lives. But we can look at other ways of being inclusive and just looking as, at children as children and having a broad range of resources available that include all types of people, all races, all abilities, uh, gender-neutral, non-binary children. I think also what's really important is when children raise questions about gender, not to just say, we don't say that, that's not what we say, and really kind of 
engage in critical conversations with children. For example, we do at school a unit on fairy tales and I spoke to the children about the princess aspect. Why is the princess always being saved? Why are stepmothers portrayed as the evil, jealous women that want to kill their, their stepdaughters? And on the, um, you know, the point of consent, why are these sleeping princesses always being kissed by these princes without any consent? And I think it's really important we're having those conversations. Tell me why you think those stories were written in that way and how could, if you had the opportunity, how would you rewrite those those stories. And I think having those critical conversations are really important. Well, I'm really interested in how the children reacted to that because some parents worry that there's, you know, uh, an agenda being put forward in schools to make children think a certain way. How did the kids react to that kind of questioning of of some of the accepted stories they might have uh, known? I think they react really well because First of all, we look at the um, the difference between original fairy tales and Disney fairy tales and what's been changed and the idea that the gruesome aspects of fairy tales have been removed because children aren't able to manage their emotions around that, which is ridiculous. Children love a bit of gore. So then you can work your way into other critical analysis about how the world looks and children are so responsive to discussions they love their voices to be heard and their ideas to be acknowledged so it's just about discussion we don't have to go out there out to nessa and change all, all the curriculum and all the syllabus documents i think the change can come in the classroom without it's just incremental without worrying wider society without worrying parents just lining children up. Children just are children. They line up by having uh, non-gender specific areas, not grouping girls when they go on, girls and boys when they go on camps, uh, not choosing different sports. Still to this day in schools, when they go out to inter-school competitions, girls go on one bus to netball and boys go on another bus to say Aussie rules. And I think just thinking about those things in schools and addressing them a small bit at a time, is how things will change. And the children react well to that. And just quickly, Jessica, how do you manage any of the anxieties that parents might feel about uh, a change and a questioning of how things have been? Well, we don't necessarily talk about the change. It's just in our language. We have parent information nights and we just talk about the children. We don't talk about boys. We don't talk about girls. If it's raised then it's an interesting conversation to have and it's more about then asking questions of parents as you would of children but not in a confrontational way. Just asking, okay, well, how do you feel about that? What makes you feel that your child who identifies as a boy needs to do boy-type things, you know, needs to play basketball at lunch as opposed to go to the library at lunchtime? Asking questions and finding out What's at the heart of that anxiety? Why is that parent feeling like that? And it could be the negative experiences they had at school around gender and being gendered. We just don't know. So I think it's always about asking questions and not assuming that it comes from a bad place. 
Yeah, a bit more listening all round would probably help. It's been great chatting with you this morning. Thanks so much for your time, Jessica Slater and Dr Kelly Burns. Thank you very much. Jessica's a teacher at the International Grammar School in Sydney. Dr Kelly Burns is a sociologist of education at Sydney University. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.